What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength of Physique with your hosts Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness. On this episode, we discuss behavior change. Our special guest named Rachel. How do you say your last name? I'm sorry. Pendaker. Pendaker. Okay. So now, you know, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, especially, you know, this is probably the pivotal moment of your career. We have like a whopping four or five listeners. So go ahead and tell us and our listeners who you are. Sure. I'm Rachel Pendaker. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and a bachelor's in music, and I'm finishing up my master's uh, in psychological science this year. So I've kind of done a lot of different things in the realm of psychology. I'm not a therapist or aiming for a therapy related degree. So what I'm looking at right now in my master's is very much research based. So I think a lot of my own personal experiences and then the different experiences I've looked at and worked in in psych um, help make my coaching very much psychology related. So a lot of my clients that I work with, with the ELT method, um, what we focus on mostly is behavior change and performance-based goals so that when they're done with coaching, they have the tools as to know what to do versus kind of dropping off the map. So, um, that's kind of my focus with my coaching and, um, education. So with your education, you're on your third degree right now. Yes. So what has you going back for more? So that's a great question. I think when I was in my undergrad, I did both of my bachelor's at the same time and I pushed them out in four years. So I was definitely ready for a break. And I think anyone who's been in academia for a long time, they know once you take a break and have time to think, your trajectory might switch a little bit from what you thought, oh, I'm for sure gonna want this. So when I was in my undergrad, I was very interested in therapeutic and community interventions. So things like working at community centers for mental health resources or things like that. Um, I thought for sure I'd wanna do a neuropsych PhD program right after my undergrad. Um, And I knew I just needed time to hash it out and say, is this what I just lined up for myself or do I actually want to do this? And then would this help me serve people? So. Um, so I took a couple years off after my undergrad and I worked, um, at a, a project at UCSD where we looked at, um, we, we used EEGs. So looking at, um, electrical impulses in the brain and using various implements there. And that during that time I was figuring out, okay, I like all this cool stuff with research, but how can I implement it? I don't want to be a lab rat and kind of tied to the bench or constantly chasing grant funding because, while publication is super important, I wanted the practical application with people face to face. So from there, I kind of figured out what I really love and what has helped me a lot is a focus on health behavior change. So that's predominantly what I focused on and drove for my master's program. So because it's not, um, it's not intended for me to go on directly into therapy after this, um, my thesis was very self-driven, self-generated, so I could focus on behavior change. So that's definitely why I've kind of taken a different path and changed my changed my goals and been okay with a little bit of flexibility because now um, not even being done, I'm able to implement this stuff, which is what I wanted all along. (laughs) So this, this might be like maybe a question for the end, but I'm just going to say it now. So I don't forget if someone's wanting to know more about uh, behavior health change, but doesn't want to go 
for a master's or bachelor degree or a minor or anything, where, what is some really good resources for someone to use to learn about that stuff? Um, it's always great to dig into the literature if you if you're comfortable reading and interpreting it. Um, but there's a lot of great books that are scientifically backed. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. So things like let me give you five books. Um, Good Habits, Bad Habits is by Wendy Wood, and she writes a ton of research and has an active lab going on this. So her work is very digestible in the book. So if you want something that's scientific without necessarily digging into papers, that's a great place to start. Tiny Habits is Awesome by BJ Fogg, who also is a researcher in this realm. Um, Atomic Habits, I'm sure you've heard of that. Power of Habits and Switch. Those five books, they're not necessarily different in their information, but the presentation. So it could be that someone really loves Switch and doesn't get tiny habits, just the language is a little different. So those are really great resources that are all kind of different voices with similar research-backed information. So you can recommend them to clients or coaches. Yeah, no, I love those. I just wrote down, what was the fifth one? It's good habits, bad habits, tiny habits, atomic habit. Atom blah. Atomic <laughs> Habits, Power of Habits, and which was the last one? It's Switch. I think there's Switch. a longer tagline to that, but it's by Chip and Dan Heath, and that's another really great one. Awesome. Yeah, because I'm always trying to – that's something I've been trying to look into more is just behavior change because I feel like, as we've already talked about uh, prior, it's a big area that is not touched on a lot of the times. So, I mean, overall, though, when someone says health behavior change, what are some things that you think of? I immediately think of all the stupid things that I <laughs> tried and why I'm so passionate about kind of, you know, retraining my clients or helping them understand that they do have a lot of power in this situation. So being that you guys have both been in the realm of exercise science and even looking at the literature to get certain certifications, like I have my CSCS, but if you look at the, the information they're presenting, it's not always up to date. And some things like behavior change, especially, which could be really excellent for coaches, you know, in any realm, it's not taught, like you mentioned, and then looking through information to try and figure out what's just pop psychology or what's actually going to help my clients. There's a lot to sift through. So health behavior change, generally speaking, we talk a lot about health promotion behaviors, really anything that's beneficial for an individual that is health related. So things like walking regularly, eating your fruits and vegetables, they can be as basic as this, like you know, government recommendations for health and activity. So um, it's a very broad spectrum of habits that could fit within health behavior change. And like you said, it's not touched on nearly enough for coaches. What, what are some big like myths or misconceptions that you, um, like for example, uh, you know this obviously, but I'm just giving an example I know. If you want to lose weight, you have to do tons of cardio and you have to eat like a low amount of food. Like, obviously that's a big myth. What are some myths with health behavior change? I think the biggest one that I still see is that the willpower myth <laughs> that you should rely on willpower to change. And then if you, if you don't want something enough, that is the reason why you're not changing. 
And I still see it now, I think especially because talking about habits and behavior change is more popular, which I, I love, just like you know, evidence-based coaching is a term we see all the time. But where it's often missing is when you're using this language and still telling clients the same misinformation. So things like motivation or willpower are limited resources. They can be very helpful at, you know, initiating a new behavior, but you don't want to rely on, on it for the long term because anybody, even if they're, you know, an elite level athlete can tell you they don't want to get up and train every single day that's on their schedule, right? So understanding human behavior is really important for coaching as well, which is why I always, um, I always kind of find it funny when people ask me, like, do you even use psychology when you're working with clients? Well, yes, absolutely. Because if you understand how people operate, you can better help them. So that that's a big one, um, the reliance on motivation or willpower. And the second one is that if it's a health related habit or anything that you should just, you know, crank it out for 21 days, and then it's going to be automatic. Um, and this is one where I still see um, people talking about evidence-based coaching and behavior change, they're still selling clients on this 21-day thing. In reality, um, it's highly variable depending on the task and the person, and usually it takes us much longer. So there's a, a really good study if anybody's interested in digging into the research. I, I definitely am. Yeah, it's 2010. Um, Philippa Lally is the author on that one. And what they did was they had individuals, participants in the study, perform various health-related behaviors, new behaviors that they wanted to become habits. And every day they would mark off various information about how automatic the behavior felt, because one of the key components of a real habit is that you don't have to think about it. Think of like, washing your hands after going to the bathroom. Hopefully that's an automatic habit for most people. You're not consciously thinking like, okay, what do I have to do next, right? Chris Chris doesn't do it. He's the reason yeah. COVID <laughs> spread so fast at USF. Yes, of course. Wait, is it USF like really, really good though with like COVID? It was until you showed back up. Ah, uh, okay. Whatever. I'm, I'm gone now, so I don't, I don't get what you're saying. Well, maybe, maybe the, uh, the method of this study will help you then developing this habit, but. All right, um, right. Yeah, so they looked at automaticity because that is the key to a habit versus just, you know, something on your to-do list. And on average, it was 66 days before something felt automatic for people. Wildly varying, I think it was um, 18 to 253 or 54 days. So what that tells you is we're not aiming for that 66. It's a good indication that it probably takes longer than 21 days, but the focus shouldn't be on how many days in a row you've accrued or like, oh, once I hit day 22, this is gonna happen. It's continuously completing those little behaviors so that you're setting yourself up that one day you're not gonna have to consciously think about it. So that's one of the big health behavior myths I still see is that emphasis on 21 days or 30 day challenge and then th day 31, somehow you're different, right? Which I'm sure you guys see a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I think you hit a great point because a lot of coaches or even big companies, they sell you on those 25 or whatever day challenges and they expect it to kind of happen or it's they do something super extreme. And then the unfortunate thing is that super extreme always kind of happens at the other end of the spectrum um, and they end up doing more harm than good. Um, what are some type of techniques that you use or you 
feel like you've used more often than not um, to implement these daily habits or any type of stacking habits or what are type of tools that you use for your clients? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so clearly, you know, a little bit about habit stacking. <laughs> um, so I'd say before I talk about habit stacking, the first thing is to break down a behavior to the small details. So for example, if you have a client coming to you and they're very fixated on losing X number of pounds, like I need to lose 20 pounds, what are all the behaviors that will get you there? Because you can't think, all right, good morning me, I'm gonna lose this many pounds today. You can ruminate on this, but it's not moving you forward. So break it down and say, what are the things that would get me to step 10? Okay, probably starting by adding in some regular activity or monitoring my nutrition, whatever that means for the client. So break it down into small achievable behaviors that you can easily tick off on a daily basis. Um, don't make yourself a laundry to-do list of 50 things you have to do each day. Make it really small. Otherwise, if you're focusing on 10, 15 things, um, think about how difficult it would be to get those to be all automatic. So break it down and don't be afraid to start small. And then you mentioned stacking, which is uh, habit stacking, which is essentially tacking a new behavior onto something that you already perpetually do. So for my clients, I would say the most common task that they use to stack a new behavior onto is waiting for their morning coffee. So the crux of habit stacking is you take your small new behavior and do it right before or after the thing that you're already doing perpetually in your routine. A lot of people choose something like um, right before I drink my morning coffee, I'll take my multivitamin or something that often gets forgotten or right after my morning coffee, um, or I'll take it as soon as it's ready, I'll go on my morning 15 to 20 minute walk or something like that. So you want to make it um, small, but you also have to remember to do it. And that's why habit stacking is very useful. Because if you look at all the things that you perpetually do in your routine, you probably have lots of opportunities to add something small onto it that's not a huge time burden. Um, because when it's new, we don't want to rely on motivation. Sure, it might be it might be shiny and new and easy to remember the first week or so, but what about week two when it's not as exciting to go on your daily walk? So you want to build it into your routine so that you don't have to use so much cognitive effort to remember to do it. Now to kind of touch base on the, how you said, don't focus on like 15 goals. What is, do you find the max amount of goals that you'll kind of try to focus on at one period of time or one uh, phase of somebody's um, cycle? I really like to focus in on one to two, maybe three if they kind of, you know, go off of each other, but it's much better to focus on mastering one to two things at a time than having, you know, 10 or 15 or even five things that you have to juggle and aren't consistent about. So um, going back to that, that 2010 study, when they're rating the automaticity of it, they're also very consistent. So if you're thinking, okay, if I'm just focusing on one or two things, there might be days that are off days, and then it might take me, you know, up to a year to make this more of a habit, you can always adjust the trajectory, but giving yourself something doable so that you're not constantly looking at what you had to do for the day and saying, okay, I didn't get this done. I didn't get this done, but I got, you know, one out of all these things that I'm working on. Um, it doesn't do much for your self-confidence either, which is an important part of this. So you want it, a couple things that you can do really well 
which will in turn boost your self-efficacy or your, your self-belief essentially that you can you know, accomplish your goals. Um, so it's kind of a snowballing effect. So I like to start small and pick just a couple things for people to work on. When do you know for these goals, when do you know someone has mastered it? Because as this study has stated, it might take anywhere from uh, a week or two to almost a year. So when do you know when you fully master it? That's a great question because I think, because for me, I'm just working with clients online currently. So it really comes down to the types of questions that you're asking. And I think making sure that the, there's an open dialogue for clients to say like, this is really tough for me to do, or this is just not working with my schedule so that you can adjust. So I noticed that um, especially things that are nutrition related tend to be more difficult for a lot of clients with the lockdowns and you know everything else going on. So once they start switching their language about how they talk about this, or they'll say something like meal prep is a big task that a lot of people are working on mastering out of my client base. So maybe their, their habit or their assigned behavior goal is to just work on, you know, prepping proteins twice a week or something small like that. When their language starts to shift from talking about the, the time burden or the difficulty scheduling it in or saying like, okay, I felt pretty good about it this week to more in passing, like, okay, meal prep, all good this week, you know, proteins prepped my behavior goal. Yep. Got all the days. It's interesting to see how language and their, their mindset shifts around these behaviors. And that's a really good indication. Aside from if you asked someone to do this rating scale, which you absolutely could, um, even in that, that 2010 study that I keep talking about, they, they allow you to use their materials in there. And one of the things is their rating sheet. So you could absolutely give that to clients and say like each day, you know, how automatic does this feel? So you could do that, or you can kind of read into their vocabulary around these behaviors, along with looking at, you know, general adherence to their plan as a good indication of things being more automatic. Yeah, I think I love that just because, right, it's, it's always cool to hear and see someone from day one and how they kind of progress and sh you hear and see how much growth they've come. Um, so just like, honestly, like you said, just having those open-ended conversations with clients, you can kind of see and kind of get a feel for how they are progressing. Um, so obviously, right, 2020, crazy freaking year with COVID um, and you being in California, I know it still seems like you guys are almost like stuck in the same spot. Is that still right? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like some things are open, but it's not, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to go out to eat sitting in a tent in, in like a parking <sighs> lot or something. So some things are open and it's totally fine. And there's other things that is are that, weird. Is that really a thing? Like they have tents at restaurants? Yeah, it's because... It, um, I think now we're allowed to eat indoors, but for a while restaurants could operate, but you had to sit directly outside of them. So they set up tents and tables and chairs and everything just right outside. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so going into, I guess, maybe reflecting back in 2020, what was the most, what is the biggest challenges you felt? Um, you know, a lot more people, they had more time. Um, they were at home. Um, gyms were closed. What type of uh, either personal, social, or just environmental um, barriers did you find yourself having to coach a lot of people through? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I would say I going into it, I think March of 2020, I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting for coaching because 
a lot of people, you know, job insecurity, being at home, not only having to work, but also then being childcare and primary educator and doing all this stuff. So I was thinking about what I kind of predicted would be the big um, issues in terms of adherence or continuing on. And I would say a lot of what I thought about the training side, people pulled that together quickly. But the number one thing that I got questions about or even DMs on Instagram about was emotional eating. So with the longer hours at home and all of the stress um, going through, you know, environmental stress of 2020, the world, social stress, then thinking about the catastrophic stress of dealing with worrying about your friends and family's health, worrying about the state of the world, that all kind of set up this environment to really emphasize any of that emotional eating. So emotional eating tendencies were the, the top thing that I saw with a lot of clients who never had had um, any type of eating disorder symptomology before. Some of them had never experienced things like stress eating before. So that was definitely the top thing that I saw. Now, here's one thing that I always heard when I started beginning like coaching is um, if you're if you think you're hungry, try to eat an apple. And if you're not if you didn't want to eat an apple, then you're really not hungry. Um, what are, I guess, ways to work around that type of um, disordered eating or eating that is stress eating? How do you kind of um, pinpoint that? I know you had spoken before is like literally digest or dissect it into the smallest variable but can you kind of take us through a scenario with a client? Sure. So a lot of my clients, the reason that they were engaging in emotional eating first was because of ease. So, um, I mean, teletherapy and online therapy is much more accessible now, which is excellent. I'm always going to be a proponent of therapy and referring clients out when they're not within your scope to work with. Um, but a lot of people, the therapy wasn't a normal part of their routine when this happened. And maybe it took a few months for them to even be interested in that. So the ease of a coping mechanism of self-soothing through food with immediacy, right? When you have that stress, um, oftentimes we reach for whatever's right in front of us to self-soothe. Um, and then being at home long hours, you're around your food all the time. So if you're working, like for me, working from home, I take two steps and I could eat if I wanted to, right? It doesn't require me going anywhere or even ordering something off of my phone. So one of the big things to help with this is consider your environment and the cues. So beyond just thinking, um, which I can talk a little bit about like how to switch from emotional eating to something else, look at what's around you. Do you keep a bowl of snacks on your desk and you're mindlessly eating through the day? And then when something stressful happens, you just finish your bowl of whatever, right? Um, are the things right in front of you when you open the fridge, things that are high calorie foods that might not necessarily align with your goals, or are they things like your meal prepped containers or snacks that you've already portioned out? So the first thing that I had people do um, was look around their house or their pantry and put the things that they don't necessarily, you know, want to automatically reach for in harder to reach places. And it sounds so simple, but something as easy as putting the food that you don't want to just um, completely gorge on at the top of your cabinets or, you know, some people would do it like if they had a second fridge in their garage, they put extra food out there so that it's not as easy to get to. So like what you said with the apple thing, um, if you're, if, if you could also think of it as like, okay, if you are hungry, then you'll go 
to get food if it takes an extra five minutes. And if you don't want to spend that time, you might not be physically hungry. So that's one of the, the first things that we worked on was changing your environment or like what's directly in front of you and easily accessible. And then the other thing is when it comes to emotional eating, it really is a, a maladaptive coping mechanism. So it's never just the food that is the issue. It's always some sort of charged emotion that's prompting this cycle. So um, say your client has a terrible day at work, but they're stuck at home, they're working from home, right? So then what can they do immediately to self-soothe? Reach for food. Okay, then they realize, well, I ate past the point of being satisfied. Now I feel crappy. And then comes the guilt. Like, why do I always do this to myself? Why can't I just get my shit together and keep going, right? And then it goes again. So um, another thing to think about with this is what could you do instead? So a lot of my clients who deal with emotional eating, I'll have them sit down and pick two or three distractor tasks so that when they feel that emotional pull, and kind of that really the emotions in your chest or your throat where you're angry or stressed or sad, they have something they can do immediately to shift what they're thinking about. So um, things like uh, something like working on a puzzle or one of those complicated coloring books, something like a journal entry, um, rating your physical hunger on a hunger scale to see, okay, how am I feeling? Um, doing something like if, if you have a client who's not a journaler, I'll give them something like um, a feelings wheel and say, okay, you're going to sit for two to five minutes and pick out what it is you're feeling. So you can sit with it. You don't have to generate something and write it out. So what can you do instead to still get the, the release of having something else to think about? that might be more aligned with your goals. Um, I don't suggest things like um, watching an episode of your favorite show because what's really easy to do when you sit and watch something mindlessly, you could still snack and it doesn't necessarily take your, your thoughts away from that. So it's kind of interjecting in that cycle as instead of spiraling out and, and reaching for food as self-soothing. What could you do to acknowledge your feelings they should be validated. You can sit with them for a second and then kind of pivot and move on. So you mentioned uh, watching TV isn't something good to pivot on, but what, what are some examples that you will have? I mean, I know it's very client individual based. I'm not going to have um, a guy go fix their makeup after thinking about their feelings or whatever the case is, but what are some good pivot options that you normally will offer? So going for a walk is a great one. If people, you know, have the availability, you always want to think of their schedule and say like, is this even feasible to get yeah. them? And a lot of people um, have animals. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, take your dog for a walk, play with your kids for five minutes, um, do something like the, the things I mentioned with journaling or doing a craft. A lot of my clients picked up random hobbies over quarantine. So working on something else that keeps your mind busy. Um, I'm a big fan of journaling, especially um, for clients to revisit and see, you know, different patterns that have come up because the key to changing your behavior is awareness. So without, you know, kind of gathering data on yourself to see what's going on. It's really hard to change anything. So I love journaling. And like I said, the, the feelings wheel or something that's very easy. I think they're the five minute journal is really awesome too. What, um, what is the feelings wheel? I mean, I get the concept of it, but what exactly is it? 
um, it's a tool that that was developed, I think, in the 70s, but it's it's just a big circle that has um, larger feelings like I'm stressed out. And then it breaks it down into like 10 options under that umbrella. So if you Google feelings wheel, you'll see a ton of different options for this. So that's something really handy to send out to clients and um, I find it interesting too, because a lot of my clients who don't like to journal and write down their emotions, just the act of picking it often spurs them to write a little bit more about it. So they'll say, okay, what am I actually feeling? I'm feeling um, grief, seeing the state of the world, seeing, you know, my parents are sick or something like that. I can't see family because of the lockdowns. And then they might jot down their feelings and then it provides that release. So it's a handy tool because you have to pause and consider how you're actually feeling without having to generate, generate it yourself, you know, without knowing, okay, how do I feel stressed, I guess. Right. So it helps. Um, and there's a lot of free tools on that too. Yeah. So I think we're covering some really good barriers that people can overcome. You have environmental, um, some personal ones. Um, what are some social barriers that you see individuals running into often? I think um, food pushers is a big one. Um, what, what do you mean by food public. pushers? So say you go to, you know, Thanksgiving with the family. Ah, okay. Maybe, okay. Yeah. So maybe you're dieting or you're just working on auditing your nutrition and your grandma comes over with the food that she's made and like, Oh, you have to eat this. Like you need more on your plate or people passing around food and saying things like, Oh, you don't need to diet or, you know, judgmental comments like, Oh, what? So you think, you don't need the food that we make. Like I made this just for this event, right? Um, so food pushers is a very big one. And I think even though a lot of people weren't able to see family over the holidays, that was a big one that I encountered with my clients. So, um, and that it's tricky to deal with because um, food is so much more than just fuel, right? It's rooted in culture. It's part of a lot of family experiences and memories. And a lot of things that I like to do involve going out places to try food, right? We can't deny that it's as part of this social culture. Um, so tackling food pushers is a big one. So for clients who maybe have never thought about this before, or they haven't had to, but you know, what they might do is just passively agree just so that they don't have to. Um, you know, argue with anyone or state their goals. Um, a lot of what it comes down to is preparation. So knowing beforehand, what are the boundaries that you're comfortable with? Um, maybe scheduling in something like a free meal that day so you can just enjoy. You do not need to always explain yourself to people, but having a little bit of freedom might make you feel more comfortable. Or um, things like Maybe you're going to the, the family event. You don't need to explain your goals, but maybe you could bring something to share, something that you made and that you know what's in it. Fill up on protein veggies and pick a couple of treats so you're still engaging and you don't necessarily need to say like, oh, I can't eat that, I'm dieting. Or my, I, my coach said I need to you know, follow this meal plan or whatever. So it's a little bit of flexibility coupled with the boundaries you're comfortable keeping. And I, I just want to say some because a lot of this is golden information. And especially like you said, like a lot of people have that mindset of like food is only fuel. Uh, but like you said, like food is culture. And then I, I always say culture is life. You're not able to enjoy life doing a lot of these things. Um, you're yeah. doing it the wrong way. Um, and you should probably reevaluate the processes of how you're doing it. 
Um, I think a lot of what you're just alluding to is just having a rapport and building a relationship with your clients. So you understand, Hey, where they're coming from. Um, because I think too many times in this fitness industry, in this fitness space is it's very cookie cutter and everyone should be kind of treated the same. Um, and even if you call yourself an evidence-based coach and you read one or two research articles and you have to understand there's so much variance within that population or that sample of that population. So, um, being able to develop some type of rapport, um, and having to whatever somebody clicks with and be able to run with it. And how many times have you kind of struggled with somebody's like buy-in and how, were you able to hopefully like rephrase that individual's mindset to get them to buy into whatever you were trying them to uh, get them to do? That's great because I think it's a good, uh, it's the marriage between what you know is going to work for a person and what they can feasibly do or what they're willing to do. So I think it's tricky. I'm sure it's trickier for coaches who run more of a challenge-based system or they're working on like you buy a month and then they might not do coaching year round. So for a lot of my clients, they've been around since I, I started coaching with Sohi's team in 2019. So for them having a lot of time under their belt with me, it's, it's a little different. So I think initially, um, when clients come to you and they might say a lot of different things, like I want to lose this much weight and I've been doing keto intermittent fasting and I don't want to eat carbs. And I know as soon as I eat this much, I'm going to gain weight, right? It might not be telling them all the information at the beginning. It might just be what's step one that they're going to be willing to do. So for example, because I work with predominantly women, a lot of them have been under fueling for years or they're just yo-yoing between extremes, right? Like, oh, either I eat 1200 calories or I eat 4,000 a day, but if you give me 1800, I'm gonna gain weight, right? So maybe it's just slowly and incrementally upping their calories or saying, let's just see where you are if you focus on something like three meals and two snacks a day, let's get the tracking out of the way, right? It's kind of meeting them in the middle. So I'd say with your question about buy-in, the biggest challenge that I have is getting women to eat more, <laughs> um, which is often if, if we're talking about training, that's really great because we can focus on performance-based goals and then they'll see oh, I feel so much better if I'm eating enough and then my training is awesome. And then my body comp goals are, you know, they're moving in the right direction. So it's, it's important to see this as a process and not, I've, I see a lot of coaches or coaches that I've had where if you're not doing step 10 on day one, they, they have nothing else to give you, right? It's like, if you can't do this much cardio and lift every day and monitor your nutrition and eat nothing off plan, then I don't know what to tell you. Right. Um, but you have to have that flexibility. And then if you're thinking about longevity of a plan, you want it so that when, you know, if they quit coaching with you or they're ready to move on, they know how to adjust things or they, they have a grasp on what it is you just did. So, um, buy-in it's important to acknowledge where people are coming from and then maybe coax them in the right direction without doing the, the information dump at the beginning. <laughs> gotcha. So I, no, I love that. And now I guess to throw it on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? You are moving so well with somebody, but somebody just wants more and more and more. Are you trying to reel them in or are you adding more fuel to the fire to that individual? 
are you thinking more in terms of like rigidity or things to do or just more? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. So things to do or things to add to their goals to help reach their end goal. Okay. Gotcha. So um, for clients, especially with behavior-based goals, we talked a lot about slow and steady and small. This also means that not every week or two weeks or month, you might not have different behavior goals. And for people that are, you know, high achievers, type A personality, really like the changing of goals um, are often in the situation you mentioned where it's like, okay, I've got this on my list, but I want to do more. Um, You could always, if more isn't feasible for something like cardio or, you know, training volume or frequency, what you can do is have them fine tune the behavior. So what we talked about with buy-in, it might not be that I'm having them do what I would consider optimal at the beginning. Maybe we're doing something like work on eating some kind of protein with each meal. I'm not talking about grams. I'm not having them measure it. It's just that habit. Then if they're like, okay, this is easy. I want to do more. Then maybe have them fine tune their approach instead of adding tasks to the list. And of course, this comes down to automaticity too. Maybe they're ready. These things are habitual. They can add something to the routine, Um, but you can always work on optimization or, you know, dialing in on their variables, like even sleep, right? We don't talk about sleep and stress enough with clients. So maybe during the day, everything is on point, but then they sit on their phone and scroll for three hours at night and then they don't recover as well. So there's lots of different things to focus on um, that don't necessarily add to their to-do list. Gotcha. Now, um, something that I think that you um, and I would say possibly your, your team with so he, um, you guys are a big fan of untracked meals. I even heard you talk about it before, even like intuitively eating. Um, is that something that you prescribe to individuals that, like you said, they're fine tuning, they understand how to track, they understand what they can look at some, hey, that's a protein carb. I can ramble that off. Um, are those the type of individuals? Okay. So you understand how to do this. Here's an, I guess, fine tuning or give you, aut- aut- what is the word? I, I keep, I can never say aut- audit. Oh, automaticity. <laughs> automaticity. There you go. <laughs> um, so to, I guess fine tune or maybe test that you give them an intuitive day or an intuitive meal or free track meal. Is that something that you would do? And I guess to flip that question as well, How do you define intuitive eating? Okay, so uh, for who I would give this to, it could be on both ends of the spectrum. So tracking fatigue is a real thing, right? Especially if you're a beginner and you haven't done this before. So um, a lot of times on the other end of the spectrum where maybe they're not thinking about macro breakdown, if somebody is very tired, but their adherence is high, like six days a week, they're working on tracking and doing a great job. They might just need a day off so they can focus on hunger cues and not think about numbers. Um, And on the other side of the spectrum, when you're talking about a tool to kind of see how they're doing or things like, I know a lot of people like to, to guesstimate their measuring and then check it on a scale to see how good they are with this. Um, the other end of the spectrum would be, I've had a lot of clients recently who are on the tail end of coaching or just transitioning off to do nutrition on their own. So then we might use it as a tool um, because they've gotten such great results from being a little more rigid with nutrition, having those days to kind of test their skills and also say, okay, I don't spontaneously combust if I have a day where I'm eating you know, more intuitively. Um, that can be very helpful. So 
for a lot of the women that I have, like I said, where they're, they're under fueling and very resistant to eating more, having that built in maybe at the end of a reverse diet or something where they're working on eating more in general and trusting the process, right? As cheesy as that sounds, um, having those higher days to kind of trust your hunger cues is very helpful. So it's, it doesn't have to be you track all days or every day you don't track anything. It can be in between where you have these, these periodic breaks. And then as far as um, intuitive eating, um, I mean, the crux of intuitive eating is that you are just following your hunger cues and not necessarily using this for any particular goal besides, you know, feeding yourself well and following what you need. So I don't really talk about, you know, intuitive eating your way to fat loss isn't really a thing. You could work on different ways that aren't tracking and work towards fat loss. Um, but for clients who truly want the end goal to be intuitive eating, then using those untracked days and slowly tapering off the rigidity, um, then I would focus more on, you know, physical hunger cues and being aware of that because the restriction component is, isn't part of real intuitive eating, right? Gotcha. Yeah. I just, I feel like that phrase is thrown out so often nowadays. Yeah. Um, and even now, like when I give clients free days, I'm like, Hey, intuitively eat. And they're asking like, what does that mean coach? I'm like, I guess the best way I can phrase is education. Like, right. You're going to follow, if you're hungry, go ahead and eat, but don't, I always say, don't eat like an asshole. Like don't eat a, a box of pizza or a bag, whole bag of Doritos. Like you do what we've built up. Like we're focusing on protein. We're focusing on nutritional dense foods. Sure. You can have like the food you want, but as we've been practicing right all time in and time out is you're having it within your plan or within your macros, the same thing would apply, but you're just not, again, focusing on that device where you're going to track it. Now you're just focusing on, Hey, I can control my feelings and things of that nature. Um, so I always, I never, I'm starting to get away from that phrase of intuitive eating and say, Hey, it's more of an educational process. Hey, eat education, educational wise of, Hey, these are my goals. These are how I'm feeling. Um, because I feel like that, that phrase of intuitive eating is just getting overused almost now. Yeah. And I think, was it last year that, or was it 2019 maybe where the anti-dieting movement was really big on Instagram and intuitive eating was talked about a lot and mm -hmm. all this information. I think if you're thinking of how to instruct clients where you're still wanting them to practice moderation. So, I mean, you're not talking about restriction or anything like that, you can always um, look at the mindful eating research or information. I made a few posts on this because clients, like I said, with the, the untracked days and what you're talking about, like don't eat like an asshole, eat in alignment with what makes you feel good and, you know, serves your goals. Um, so things like paying attention to physical hunger cues, um, asking yourself, questions like if I eat more of this will I actually feel better does it even taste good anymore right I think we've all been there with things that especially forbidden foods right I'm very big on people incorporating you know a little bit of everything all the time because it often loses its you know magical forbidden appeal right so um, a lot of the mindful eating techniques are great if you if you want clients to think about nutritional choices without the rigidity of numbers because it's all about the, the experience of enjoying food, whether it be social setting or by yourself. So a lot of the mindful eating tips can be helpful. Got it. Yeah. I think this is all really, again, really good information. Um, 
Chris, you have any other questions? She she nailed a lot of what I uh, kind of fed my biases, but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had about two other questions, but she we've covered it. Um, just to recap them, I think some really good tools. Uh, I think is that feelings wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be something I look up, um, and then also explaining. To, <laughs> there's my dog. <laughs> I don't, he likes to go crazy whenever he wants. Um, but no, the feelings wheel, understanding that little behaviors can really add up to big ones um, and understanding that everyone progresses at a different level is going to be extremely important because that's something I had no idea. And I wrote that study down, uh, the 2010 study about it could be two weeks. It could be a year that someone could really grasp the habit and consider it a daily routine then. Um, but just to recap, Rachel, what are, what are some big wins that just really make you feel satisfied as a coach? Like when your client finally changes, um, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to be looking for now is the individuals like I was only able to like meal prep my protein once instead of twice this week. And they changed their, like their language to, Oh no, totally got protein. And I got some like potatoes and rice cooked with it as well. Yeah. Um, what are some big wins for you as a coach when you hear clients responding to your check-ins? Um, I think the biggest win for me is that when my clients feel empowered by coaching versus feeling like their their check-ins need to be impressive or that if they explain to me what's going on in their life then somehow they need to apologize so i think having been through a handful of terrible coaches myself (laughs) um and knowing that even if i have an understanding of this working with somebody who is not empathetic or doesn't have a clue how to adjust is very discouraging so it's it's the most rewarding for me when my clients will you know start to not only take ownership and say oh i can absolutely do this or they talk about how what we've worked on in coaching has overflowed to other areas of their life or maybe their spouse's life as well so that's a big one and then Uh, Another big win for me, especially working with so many women who've been fed misinformation for so long, is when they feel like they belong in the gym and that it's their thing too and that they don't have to shy away from it. They don't have to, um, you know, be worried about the foods they're consumed, that they're consuming in the same way. Like they're, they're fueling themselves for training versus trying to shrink to be the smallest version of themselves and being, you know, very run down by the process. So that's the biggest thing for me. And uh, although I'd love to work with all of my clients indefinitely, I really love to see when they're ready to work on their own or they're, you know, taking a more flexible approach with things. And then what they say at the end of it is like, oh, I love this, but I feel really like I can do a lot of this by myself, which is what I want. So that's the biggest thing for me. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that's one of my biggest wins that I've uh, since I've gotten into coaching is when a client is like, okay, I think I got this. And I've only been working with them for three or four months, but for someone who, um, handles clients for a year at a time, um, or whatever that time length is, regardless of that time length, if they feel confident, that's all that matters. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think maybe you guys can attest to this too, whether it be even just like, 
a coach who only handled my strength training or something like that. If we never have these conversations about, you, you don't have to explain every, you know, tiny detail of, of the plan you might give a client unless they're interested. But if they're not talking to you about, you know, some sort of rationale or adjustment on your own or all of these things, it's hard to be done with something. And then you're, you're dropped off with no information as to how to continue on, unless it's like, okay, I guess I'll find another coach, but what's my goal here? Or like, what do I need to sign up for coaching again and then run through it? So I think instead of seeing it as like, okay, months one through three, we're going to work on your progress and then you can sign up again or be done. If you see it as a chance to really educate people and give them the tools, then I mean, a lot of people will want to work with you forever, but if they don't, then they don't feel like they're just lost and, you know, treading water on their own. So yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's a, it's a big pet peeve of mine of just telling, Hey, just do this, this, and this, and this, and giving no rationale, but educating them. And so I, like you said, the best feeling as a coach myself is somebody literally dapped me up. Hey, I don't need you no more. I'm like shit. I, I, then I've done my job. You know, go yeah. spread, go spread the word about yeah. me, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause I think, I mean, anyone can give you a program, but not everybody can educate you and truly coach you and give you the valuable tools to work on things. Right. So um, yeah, it's important to have, more dialogues like this, where you're talking about what can you do to be a better coach, not just somebody who hands out a program. Cause in my mind, that's not really the same as coaching. <laughs> right? So let me, let me uh, kind of ask one last final question since we're kind of in this, I guess, coaching uh, tangent, what do you feel? Because I, I starting to see it now is like even programming. I have a good friend, she's doing something with like this huge almost like computer thing and analyzes your movements it tells you hey you need to do this this and this it kind of fix you cueing wise but it's all through ai and now we have a bunch of these macro calendar or calculators or ai what is that make you fearful or does that kind of fuel you as a coach that hey i gotta either fine tone my skills or or in my opinion shout out to all those other coaches that are not as personal you got to step up your game because a lot of these tools are now through your phone or a laptop what are, what are your thoughts on that process? I'm not, I've never been fearful of that. I think because a lot of these things like coaching or therapy or education in general, you can't really substitute human interaction and, and you know, what a good coach can tell you versus a calculator. Now you, that might be fine for you, but I don't think it means like competition. It's just a different set of tools that we have available and that might be helpful for coaches to have those as well but i don't see that as a threat to good coaches at all because what you're providing is you're not you're not just cranking out the numbers hopefully <laughs> also thinking about all these things and adjusting things like behavior goals you need to know about the person so that you can adjust and interact and you know empathy it's not easily manufactured through AI. So um, I think, like you said, that is a good push for coaches who maybe are more of, you know, put it on paper, send it out to your clients and it's not the same interaction. Maybe that is a good push because things like um, talking about behavior change or true evidence-based coaching, you're going to need to know, you need to know your stuff so that you can be a good coach. Otherwise, what's to say what you're doing couldn't be substituted by something else. So I think it's a good push because I mean, having more tools at your disposal is great. Um, so maybe 
you know, adding some of those into your coaching would be good, but I don't see it as a, as a threat to good coaches at all. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that. I think all these tools that are coming out or stuff like that is it, for coaching, it's very hard to put one thing on a broad spectrum of people because even with these tools that are coming out, it's a generalized tool that will fit for most, but okay. If we have these clients that go from eating a lot to eating 1000 calories or like 1600, because this is what this formula said, then, okay. They stopped losing weight in like two months because they went from like 3000 calories to 1600. Like they crashed their system. And so I think they're always going to be a need for good coaches. And I think the good coaches won't really worry about the tools. Sort of like you're saying, Rachel, not saying you were thinking that Adam, I think obviously you're just getting the opinion, but uh, no, I love the tools and I think it just provides more people a chance to try it on their own and find out maybe that they can't, or maybe that that was the one thing that they were missing that they really needed. So. Yeah. And I think, the coaches that I know that are really great coaches, whether, or educators in general, they're not worried about the things that could overshadow them. They're thinking about what they can do to be better for their clients or their students or, you know, their team, if you're coaching a team. Um, so if it's the same thing, I would tell clients who are very fixated on the end goal that that won't help you get to where you want to be. It could stress you out a lot to every day be like, oh, I still want to lose 20 pounds, but you don't have the tools to get there. So I think what you're fixating on says a lot about, you know, how much you're willing to, to grow and push yourself so that you can be a better service to, to your, your clients or students or whoever you're working with. Yeah, I agree. I feel like if you're threatened by that, you got a, a stuck mindset and I, I don't want to be around that, those stuck mindset people. So, all right. Uh-oh. I don't see you later then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so to wrap it up though, Rachel, what are you, what are you hoping to accomplish in your future? Um, 10 years from now, where do you see yourself? I think you might have a third degree or a master. Are you in your master's then? Or are you on a third bachelor? No, I'm finishing my master's. I'm almost done. Okay. So after your master's, where do you see yourself going and where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? Um, so I, I think if I were to guess where I'd be, I'd be completely off because <laughs> I think just with my trajectory in psych, so much has changed depending on, you know, the random opportunities that pop up. And then I see, you know, how I can best help others and how I can use what I've learned to serve people. Cause that's always been my, my main driver. So um, I think what I really want to focus on is continuing to educate. I'm sure I'll do that to some capacity, no matter what it is I'm doing, because I really love, you know, empowering people through, you know, through the research or through knowledge or whatever, because if you have the knowledge, it's not the same as always knowing how to implement it. So that's my main goal, wherever I may end up. Um, and I don't know if we'll see after a break, if I'm ready to do a PhD or something else, but mainly focusing on education. Well, this is awesome for anyone that is looking to be empowered. It sounds like Rachel is going to be around helping individuals for a while. Where can those individuals find you, Rachel? Um, you can find me on Instagram at rpendiker. Um, I'm happy to answer questions if you have any, or you can look at our coaching page, which is um, eltmethod.com. 
You can also email me from there if you have questions. I don't mind talking about behavior change <laughs> any day. So yeah, you can contact me that way. So everyone, Rachel's spitting all the smoke today. You can find her on Instagram. You can find her at eltmethod.com. What about YouTube, Rachel, or any other things? Is that your two main things, Instagram and then the website? Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So if you and have questions. And now on all the smoke podcast. For all of our four, five followers. Yes, hey. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, Rachel, thank you so much. Uh, I think this was not only valuable for a ton of different people and hopefully many to come that are going to be listening to this in the future. But also me and Adam, I think took away a lot of stuff. What was the one study, the 2010, you said, Philip, how do you spell that? Oh, it's Philippa Lally. Her last name is L-A-L-L-Y. So a lot of papers that have cited that or that are in her references are great places to start if you want to look at health behavior change. So it's a study that's cited all the time because it really took that the quantitative view of how long it, it takes to build a habit. So that's a great place to start. Yeah, honestly, I'm going to be like referencing that every single day of my life from now on. <laughs> if anyone ever says, oh, it takes 14 days to build a good habit. I'm like, okay, on the short yeah, end, yes. <laughs> yeah, literally. So, all right, Rachel, we appreciate you so much. This was all the smoke on strength and physique and with a psych twist to it first time. So thank you so much, Rachel and yeah. adios, everyone.